birds don't really know what south is. The debate over the handsomest canyon rages on. With waves, it's not always about the biggest and the baddest. A pet mollusk doesn't need a name. Prairie is no place for a prairie allergy. Astronomy and astrology are identical in every way. Someone should make a movie about how much it might rain soon. Wearing animal pelts isn't just a phase. Geysers will outlast us all. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. Out of All Doors is a podcast about the outdoors, and if you're hearing this, then you're listening to it now. Don't shut it off, please. Instead, continue to listen to it. It'll stop on its own eventually. Wouldn't it just be more convenient to wait for that to happen? Until then, why don't you see if you can enjoy yourself? Maybe learn a few things. Right now, as I'm recording this, it's a few days after Valentine's Day, and I can't help but reflect on the fact that many of you probably have really, really, really broken hearts. I don't. I'm fine. This is not a roundabout way of intimating that I have a broken heart and that you should pity me, but I'm sure some of you do have broken hearts, maybe because of the holiday, or maybe the holiday just drew the already existing brokenness of your hearts into sharper relief, made it harder to ignore, brought the pain closer to the surface. So that's why I wanted to tell you about a good place to find solace, the outdoors. I know, big surprise, right? But hear me out. I can't tell you how many times I've asked someone how they developed their love for the outdoors and they've told me it all started with a broken heart. There's just something about a deep, intense sadness that makes a person want to breathe fresh air, view majestic scenery, and learn how to treat snake bites. Take our own Harrison Blum, his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, whatever she is. Anyway, she broke his heart and what did he do? He turned to nature. He turned to the outdoors. He started bird watching, as you regular listeners know. Did it solve all of his problems? No. Not yet, anyway. But if he didn't have bird watching, he'd have nothing. Like, almost literally nothing. Sometimes when you're heartbroken, you can start to feel like you have nothing. But if you have the outdoors, you feel like, I have nothing except the outdoors. And that's much better, because I may be biased, but the outdoors is great. And besides, everyone's biased. You're biased in ways you don't even recognize. There could probably be a whole podcast about bias. Not just one episode, a whole series. It wouldn't be interesting, though. I'm just talking in terms of the sheer volume of content. I'm making no claims about its potential to delight and entertain. Maybe you're skeptical about the ability of the outdoors to provide you with solace as you live with the pain of your broken heart. First of all, that skepticism is probably a symptom of your broken heart. Or, I don't know, maybe it was the cause of your broken heart. Most people, if given a choice, would rather not love a skeptic. But, however your skepticism relates to your broken heart, I want to confront it head-on. Why? Because skepticism's weakest area is its head. Skepticism's head is its Achilles' heel. You could just as well say that Achilles' heel was his skepticism's head. So, wallowing in your skepticism as you are, you doubt the ability of the outdoors to offer solace to your broken heart itself. And it's fine for you to doubt, for now, because I haven't given you any illustrations of my point yet. But once I have, which will be soon, it will no longer be fine for you to doubt. Here comes my first example. 1. Let's say your girlfriend of one year leaves you and now you're brokenhearted. Okay. Well, okay, so uh, you just go mountain biking then. 
And as you're pedaling along, you're like, whoa, got to watch out for that log. Better hit the brakes a little here. Looks like there's a curve in the trail up ahead. Better get ready to turn in the direction of that curve so I stay on the trail. Notice what you're not doing? That's right. You're not thinking about your ex and how sad you are that she left. Let's look at another example. Number two. Okay, so let's say your wife of eight years leaves you and you're brokenhearted. All right. But, yeah. All right, so you... uh, Okay, you just do something simple. You go to your nearest state park and you just walk around. And you're like, my heart might be broken, but my nose works just fine and I smell major flowers all up in this state park. And you're like, my heart might be broken, but my eyes work just fine and I see a fascinating stump over there. And you're like, my heart might be broken, but my hands work just fine and I'm working this trail marker sign out of the ground so I can take it and put it in my dorm room. But I'll need to hose it off first, man... How deep is this thing buried? Woof, it's super heavy. I'm not carrying this all the way back to my car. I'll just pitch it in the river. Oh, great, that kid just saw me, and he looks like a total tattletale. Well, if any park employees try to bust me, I'll just start crying and tell them that my wife of eight years recently left me. Okay, one more example. All right, let's say you find out your fiancé of 18 years has been having a 15-year affair and you're brokenhearted. Um, um, uh, well... Okay, let's, uh, oh, I know, you take up mudding, which is driving a truck or Jeep around in mud, I guess. So everything gets covered in mud, your truck is covered in mud, your friends are covered in mud, your dog is covered in mud, and you are covered in mud. Your truck gets stuck in the mud, so you get out in the mud to try to push it up out of the mud, and you succeed, but not without getting even more mud on everything and everyone. And one of the newbies is like, is mudding always this muddy? And you just laugh, mud spraying from your mouth, because, uh, yeah, it's always this muddy. But deep down inside of you, there's a stab of pain, because you know in a few hours you'll go home and take a shower. And as the mud washes away and swirls down the drain, the ache of your broken heart will return, and it will intensify steadily until the next time you can go mudding. Maybe, maybe you won't shower tonight. Maybe, maybe you'll just... Go to bed muddy. Yeah, maybe you will. So how about it, skeptic? Ready to pit that broken heart against the outdoors to see who comes out on top? I know where I'm putting my money. I'm putting all of my money, as always, on the outdoors. Now it's time for the rest of the episode. Let's begin, shall we? The five people you meet while prospecting for gold. First is the Midas. Everything he touches with his bare hands turns to gold. So why is he all the way out here in the boonies with the rest of you hapless prospectors? It'd be nice if he wandered over to your claim and touched a few rocks, but whenever he comes by for a chat, his gloves stay on and he doesn't seem to notice any of your hints. One golden shovel and you could pack up and go home rich, but nope. Nope. Number two is the burrow. This one isn't a person, it's a donkey, and there's only one for everyone in the whole area to share. Even less convenient, there's no sign-up sheet for burrow use. He just helps out whoever he feels like helping out at the time. Try to enlist his aid against his wishes, and you'll get yourself kicked. No two ways about it. Sometimes you see the burrow come trotting by, and guess who's riding on his back? That's right, it's the Midas. Those are among your lowest moments. Then there's the fly fisherman. Why can't he go fly fishing somewhere else? Can't he see you're trying to pan for gold here? 
You try to clatter and splash about so that he'll decide he might have better luck in a more peaceful spot, but he is undeterred. Any luck yet? He asks every once in a while. No, you shout back. How about you? Any luck yet? Nah, he usually says, mild as a spring birthday, a serene smile on his lips. But don't that breeze just feel nice? Next is the gold lover. This prospector loves gold so much he literally wants to marry it. He wants to find gold on his own claim, have it fashioned into a wedding ring, and then marry that ring. He knows very little about love, but he knows a lot about gold. For example, he knows what kinds of compliments it likes, and when it likes to be held, and when it likes to be left alone. Well, he says he knows, and if anyone does, it's probably him. Last is the pickaxe enthusiast. This prospector thinks he can solve all of his problems with a pickaxe, but nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, pretty much everyone who knows him agrees that his pickaxe causes a lot more of his problems than it solves. It can't be a coincidence that everyone else in his family despises pickaxes. There's a joke around town that he'd rather strike a rich deposit of pickaxes than a vein of gold. Most of the people in town aren't good at jokes. They're just dumb prospectors. We're back again with a segment we started in episode three in which I've decided for now to call Fundamentals of Hermitry. As I explained then, the Out of All Doors blog, when it was at its peak, was the premier spot for hermits on the internet. And though the blog is gone now, its URL claimed by a backstabbing usurper, our connection to the hermit community remains. So once again, we sent our intrepid young correspondent, Cayman Bird, to talk to a man known as Hermit Cyrus. We think you'll find the resulting interview enlightening. First of all, thank you for agreeing to talk to me, Hermit Cyrus. Oh, sure. A lot of people think hermits don't like to talk, but some of us do. I like talking just fine. What I can't stand is how other people look. I hate having to see them. That explains the blindfold. Yes. This is the only way I can interact with people. I could just close my eyes, of course, but even I, as much as I hate looking at people, am occasionally tempted to look at people. An impulse that... When I've succumbed to it, it has never failed to yield results ranging from disappointment to horror to abject hatred. So the blindfold helps. I wouldn't mind talking to people on a phone, of course. <laughs> but look at me. I could never afford a phone service of any kind. That seems clear. Seems like most jobs you'd be qualified for would require you to at least occasionally see people. Even if only for the interview. I tried to get an internet job once, but... That required the use of a computer, which I did not own and could not afford. I tried going to the library to use their computers, but I saw so many people on the way to the library and at the library and walking past the windows outside the library and printed on the covers of the books and magazines on the shelves in the library that I clapped my hands over my eyes and cried out in agony. Not once, not twice, not three times, nay, not even four times, not even five times. I tell you truly, twas not six times I cried out. "'Twas not um, seven times I cried out, nor was it less. "'In um, fact, it was more. It, "'Not merely eight times, not merely nine times. "'What uh, is it about seeing people that disturbs you so profoundly?' "'Well, I'm no doctor, but I think it's their faces.' "'Their faces? "'So seeing, for example, a person's hand doesn't bother you?' "'I just told you, I'm not a doctor.' "'So for you, being a hermit is strictly about avoiding people.' It has nothing to do with getting back to nature or anything like that. 
All I know is that I can see trees and rocks and clouds all day long and never have a breakdown, wherein I fall to my knees and I cry out in agony, even once, not to mention twice or thrice, much less four times or... So what if a person had a head but no face? What? I mean, what if instead of a face there was just smooth skin or more hair like the top of their head? Sort of like a head with two backsides? Do you think he could see that person without having a breakdown? It's hard to say. Well, if a person just didn't have a head. Let's say there's nothing at the top of this person's neck. Just tough skin like the bottom of a foot. Or maybe, instead of a head with a face, there's a longer, stronger third arm with a fully functional hand on the end. Without a face on the palm, of course. But the fingernails are painted a sort of magenta color. Would you be able to see that without having a breakdown? Listen, I'm not 100% sure it's the face that bothers me about seeing people. I'm not a doctor. I don't know how these things work. I just know that when I see people, I, I feel this, this... Okay, so let's say there's a person that's just like another person every way, except that where the face would usually be, there's just one enormous eye that takes up the entire front of their head. That's not technically a face. That's just one element of of a face standing in for the entire face. Would you be able to see that and still function like a normal human being? Like, if that person was your boss and your only co-worker, would you be able to keep your job and be a protective member of society? Or let's say this person had a complete face, all the usual elements, but it's on the small of his back. Like the waist of his pants is right below his lower lip. So usually sure he's covering the face, where the face would usually be, on the front of the head, there's just a landscape painting right on the skin. So in this situation, it'd be sort of like talking on the phone, because you know the face was there, but it's just, you know... It's not the face. What? It's not the face that bothers me about seeing people. Oh? What is it, then? It's the expression of irritation on the face. And why are the faces of people you see expressing this irritation? Probably because of all the crying out in agony. And why are you crying out in agony? Because I don't know how to behave in public. Well, this has been Cayman Bird, Hermit Correspondent for Out of All Doors, speaking with Hermit Cyrus. Thank you for listening. We take a guided tour through a vacant warehouse. There are some of the windows, says the tour guide. Broken, sadly, but they needn't stay broken. Many people are unaware that when this warehouse was first built, every single window was intact. We all look at each other, and we make that eyebrows-arched, not-angry frown face that means, huh. In fact, says the tour guide, much of this glass we're walking on now was a part of those windows back when they were new and whole and unbroken. We all look down at the glass fragments crunching under the sandals we're wearing because we thought this was going to be a different kind of tour. Just then, to our surprise and delight, we hear a distinctive flapping sound way up over our heads in the darkness just beneath the warehouse roof. With neither intention nor expectation, nevertheless, we have entered the battery. When I was a senior in high school, I took a creative writing class. 
One day, just as a fun, silly assignment, Mr. Iden told us to come back the next day with a few hink pinks to share with the class. A hink pink is a kind of riddle where the answer is always two words that rhyme. I'll give you a simple example. What do you call the area in which people are encouraged to vocalize their pain? Groan zone. I'll give you another one. What do you call breakfast food befitting a supreme ruler? Imperial cereal. This is a game my friends and I still play to this day, sometimes while hiking. So we all came to class the next day with our hink pinks. I don't remember any of mine or Matt's or JJ's, but I do remember one of Tyler Campbell's hink pinks. What, he asked, do you call a bat that's fat? We all looked at him in disbelief. Someone hazarded a guess. Bat, bat? No, said Tyler. He sounded a little insulted. You can't just put the words in the clue, but in a different order, I said. I didn't, said Tyler. It has to be fat bat, said Matt. It's not fat bat, said Tyler, raising his voice. He was frustrated with all of us. We were being dense. Fine, said Mr. Iden. What's the answer? In that moment, perhaps a glimmer of doubt appeared in Tyler's eyes. But maybe my brain has added that glimmer of doubt in retrospect. I don't know. What I do know is that Tyler then gave us the answer to his hink pink. What do you call a bat that's fat? Fatty batty. There is a bat who remembers you. It saw you, perhaps last night, perhaps years ago, but you made an impression. And if I were you, I would find that comforting. If I were you, the knowledge that somewhere out there is a bat who remembers me would put a spring in my step. Granted, the bat may not remember you for positive reasons. It's certainly the case that people and events are often memorable for their awfulness. But I hope, both for your sake and the bat's sake, that the bat remembers you for a nice reason. Maybe you were the most beautiful human the bat had ever seen. Although, if a bat thought you were beautiful, then that probably means you looked the most like a bat of any human that bat had ever seen. I love bats, but that wouldn't be much of a compliment. When bats look like bats, it's lovely. When humans look like bats, it makes you a little ill. And in the spirit of fairness, I should point out that there's a millipede that remembers your birthday. But, if I may editorialize for a moment, who cares? A man locked in a high tower. He presses his face to the bars, feels the night air on his chin, forehead, and many other regions of his face. He is very hungry, but not starving, for every night, he extends his tongue through the bars and a bat drops tiny morsels of half-cooked rodent meat thereupon. The man doesn't even know if it's the same bat. Thank you, he always croaks to the bat as it flies away to fetch another morsel. Is that bat acting of its own accord? Or is the bat merely an agent of another, a savior biding his time in the vast forest that surrounds the tower until a full-scale rescue can be mounted? The man never asks the bat these questions. He never says anything other than, thank you, to the bat. He believes the bat to be incapable of answering his queries to a satisfying degree. And so the man's life is sustained by a bat with inscrutable motives. Appropriate, in a way, when you consider the reason this man has been imprisoned in this tower. He sabotaged the Emperor's biannual bat hunt by working in secret for months to build a rapport between the Emperor's hounds and the bats of the realm. When the Emperor discovered the stuffed doll bats covered in authentic bat scent that the hounds had taken to cuddling up to every night as they slept, it didn't take long before the resulting investigation turned up the man responsible. Would the man like to believe the bat knows what he did for it and its compatriots and is thanking him in its own way? 
Yes, he'd like to believe that. He'd like very much to believe that. But he can't be sure. Still, he sticks his tongue through the bars. The bat deposits a half-cooked morsel of rodent meat on his tongue, and he eats it. He's always liked bats. Always. Fatty Batty was a bat that was fat. Whereas other bats were not fat, Fatty Batty was. Although we know that his fatness preceded all, we do not know if his fatness or his name came first. He was always easy to pick out of a big crowd of bats. All you had to do was look for the fat one. That was Fatty Batty, all right. Doing everything the other bats did in exactly the same way that they did it, except that he was fat the whole time. He flew around, hung upside down, ate bugs, used sonar, fathered baby bats, all while fat. And then he died. Not because he was fat, but because he was old. Because all things die, whether not fat or fat. And the pastor gave a touching eulogy. And at the end he said, What do you call a bat that's fat? And all those assembled responded in unison, Fatty Batty. Sorry about the bats, says the tour guide. We've tried to get them out, but they keep getting back in. The mood turns. Abruptly, it sours. None of us are impressed with what the tour guide just said. Not impressed at all. She obviously doesn't know us very well. And she obviously doesn't know bats very well. You know what? We all just collectively got really sick of this tour. It just got real, real quick. Real quick. It was alright for a while, but now? Now it's not. Now it's time, past time, to leave the battery. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. Today I spent my morning at the Goodwill, searching for the guidebooks and binoculars I donated last month. Once again, our podcast has changed formats. It seems we've reverted to the outdoors. While other contributors claim to have been duped as well, I can't help but think that perhaps this was some larger joke at my expense. Let's see if we can't get old Harrison to spend three minutes on hot cheese. But I'm over it, or at least I will be. For now, I'd just like to reclaim my bird gear. I admit I'm a bit shaken by how quickly I rid myself of the guidebooks, the binoculars, the hiking boots, and the whistle I purchased on the off chance I found myself turned around in the woods behind the gas station. Not two days after recording the sauce segment, I loaded a toaster oven box with the items I'd collected over the last few months and drove them straight for donation. My receipt lists seven items that I handed away with a passion I cannot now fathom. I'm starting to worry over this newfound impulsiveness, as I've always been, to put it lightly, cautious. My inability to make a quick decision proved to be a rather significant sticking point for Eleanor. I'd sit at our kitchen table, the coupon binder splayed atop some placemats, and do the math on which canned peas were the best canned peas for us. Should we buy the Del Montes, because they're 19 cents cheaper, or should we swing for the fences with the Green Giants? Presumably, the more we ate the Del Montes, the more we'd learn to like them anyway. Conversely, was the extra 19 cents on green giants an allowable luxury, given how much we saved on generic carrots? This slowness I see now is a trouble equal to my impulsivity, but it's one I've grown into, a slow calculation to be slow and calculating. My impulsivity, however, perhaps feels more problematic because it's so new. It raises, it seems, one big question. Is my quick dismissal of birdwatching a statement on my passion for the hobby, or is it a statement on my willingness to find a connection to Eleanor? 
Furthermore, would I even be in this position if, every once in a while, I just tossed whatever peas I liked into the shopping cart? Or better yet, if I just put a night of Chinese takeout on our credit card? This is a long way of saying that I don't quite know who's more preferable, impulsive Harrison or cautious Harrison. So for now, hello again, my feathered friends. At Goodwill, I tracked down birds of the Midwest. The guide's still new cover, stickered to hell, already marked down twice, serving in that moment as a table on which sat a plastic tea party set. The hiking boots and binoculars were nowhere to be found, so it looks as if I'll have to keep looking. The binoculars I'll miss most, as I already can't remember what ducks look like up close. By next episode, I hope to have these items recovered, and perhaps a few additional ones now that I'm back to bird format. And, to any listeners on the hunt for stainless steel whisks, a three-piece silicone spatula set, a two-quart sauce pot, or an apron inscribed with the words Chef Harrison, I recommend you venture to the Goodwill on Northwest Arterial, as these items were donated this morning. Please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison. And now it's time for a joke with Cousin Brent. Yeah, all right, I got a joke for you. Well, more of a story. Last night I was at my uncle's acreage in Denton, Nebraska, helping him shovel some snow. Now let me tell you, it was a cold one. And the thing about the cold ones is they make old Brent need to evacuate the old bladder. And my uncle, named Wayne, now Uncle Wayne, is an old-fashioned kind of guy. He spent most of his life since the steam shovel incident in the sand hills, and he's probably talked to more cranes than the kind of birds you or I talk to on a Saturday night. And that's all well and good. But one old-fashioned trait he has that I don't care too much for is his aversion to plumbing. Now, Uncle Wayne is one of the few defenders of the outhouse still alive today, and he'll defend it until he's migrated on to heaven like so many of his beloved cranes. Now, at this point, not only did I have to evacuate the old bladder, but I should mention that the old bowels were in need of evacuation as well, and doing the unmentionable outside is not an option for me. So, reluctantly, I headed to Uncle Wayne's outhouse, and when I trudged in there, I noticed something curious down there inside the hole whereupon you're meant to conduct your business. Inside this outhouse hole sat an old Indian man, clad in his full regalia. He was covered in eagle feathers, from bespoiled head to bespoiled toe. And now, you know me, I'm a reasonable and compassionate man, so naturally I was concerned for this old Indian chief. We locked eyes and I asked him, Ahoy, chief, how long you been down there? For a moment, silence lingered in the winter air. A misty vapor, almost too pure and innocent to disturb with words of any language not spoken by angels. But the sage Indian chief answered me with a voice that sounded as if it had echoed through ancient canyons when the mighty buffalo still fed on prairie grass that hadn't been run through by the rusted steel of manifest destiny. In his eyes I saw oceans uncrossed, mountains unclaimed. His words drifted to my ears as canoes on a windless midnight lake. Finally, they brushed ashore. Many moons, he said.
Welcome to Sawsome, the segment about sauces that are awesome within the podcast Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Jason. You may know me from previous episodes where I first appeared due to the uncanny resemblance between my voice and Out of All Doors host Adam Drent's voice. Here's a clip. Bye, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Then I appeared again in episode four, and then once again last episode where I accidentally kidnapped Adam and took over the show for about half the podcast. At the time, I was into some pretty heavy drugs and a bit confused. As a professional singer, I have to take this opportunity to use the immortal words of Amy Winehouse to explain... They tried to make me go to rehab, and I said it won't matter what I say because my stay is being mandated by the penal system, and if I don't comply, I could be facing up to five years in prison. And now a month later, I'm back, better and stronger than ever, primed for my comeback, much like Amy following her having quit cold turkey, or Bella Lugosi, or Jeff Conaway, or any of those other folks from Celebrity Rehab. Sauces. We're here to talk about sauces. Hey, Jason, I'm, uh, I hope I'm not interrupting. Adam, hey, uh, no, no, not at all. What's going on? Just, you know, wanted to welcome you back and let you know that, well, we might have had a rough patch there, but I'm glad you're here now. I think this, you know, having something consistent in your life, it could be good for you. So, yeah, I just wanted to see how it was going. How are you? It's been a long time since anybody asked me that. I'm great. Good. Well, uh, I've got to go to the bathroom. Huh. <laughs> I'm great. Man, oh man. Man, oh man, oh man. I had always heard your entire life flashes before your eyes right before you die. For me, it was attending Berkeley School of Music, or not attending Berkeley, but rather googling the name of a music school and then lying about going there, and yellow leaves falling from maple trees as I shivered, attempting in vain to sleep in my new Nebraskan home, Adam's window well, and Adam Drent tying Adam Drent to a chair and forcing him to watch Pink Floyd's live in Pompeii as I chucked glow sticks at him. The first time I tried any of my favorite sauces, like basil pesto and creamy buffalo and ketchup. Ah, ketchup. And the first time I took drugs and ate my favorite sauces all together in a frosty mix that broke Adam's blender. I guess I could be pretty upset about what happened to me, but it's hard to stay mad when there are so many sauces in the world. Sometimes I feel like I'm tasting them all at once and it's too much. My taste buds expand like a balloon that's about to burst. Then I let it flow like ketchup from a Heinz bottle after hitting the 57 with the palm of your hand. Just right. You have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm sure, but don't worry. You will someday.
Here I am again to tell you about Featherwood Frames. These two guys in Yellow Springs, Ohio, they make great glasses frames out of locally sourced wood on pedal-powered machines. They have a website, it's featherwoodframes.com. Sunglasses, prescription glasses, they make them both. And you can get custom designs. Why am I being so straightforward and businesslike? Because despite this being like the fifth one of these ads, I still haven't seen any world leaders wearing Featherwood Frames glasses to high-level political talks. And that, to me, feels like a failure. Not Featherwood Frames' failure, my failure. Granted, that was never a stated goal of mine. In fact, I never acknowledged it as a goal just in my own mind. In fact, I'd never even thought of a world leader wearing Featherwood Frames glasses to high-level political talks until just now, but as soon as I thought it and realized that, to my knowledge, it had not yet happened, I was filled with disappointment. And I don't even like politics, politicians, or high-level talks of any kind. But seeing such a thing come to pass would be indicative of the kind of widespread cultural saturation that I feel Featherwood Frames deserves. Would it be cooler if a famous rock star wore Featherwood Frames during a rock concert? Yes, but that wouldn't necessarily indicate widespread cultural saturation. I'm sure you understand. But if you insist on rejecting my world leader at high-level political talk scenario, then what about having pictures of different Featherwood Frames glasses printed on the sides of collectible cups from a major fast food chain? If that wouldn't be indicative of widespread cultural saturation, I don't know what would. But Featherwood Frames would never agree to such a thing. Something like that would be almost wholly contradictory to everything they stand for. But it'd be nice if a major fast food chain would want to, you know. It'd be nice if a major fast food chain at least asked. <sighs> Featherwood frames. Light as a feather would. Now it's time for the second installment of the Chronicles of Corndog, written and read by Grang Lynch. Corndog was only five months old when he discovered he knew how to read. He wasn't allowed in the half-bathroom off our kitchen, but he had sneaked in anyway while my mom was away at the grocery store. There, lying on the floor in front of the toilet, was a magazine covered with squiggles. Corndog had seen squiggles like these before. My mother would make them on notepads while she was talking on the phone, and then leave them around the house. My father would carry in a bundle of envelopes every day when he came home. Each one, it seemed to Corndog, stuffed full of squiggles inside. He'd never paid much attention to the squiggles before. But now, for some reason, the ones that stared at him from the magazine on the bathroom floor enthralled him. The squiggles, I should mention, were ones we would recognize as the sentence, Now is the time to buy a pontoon boat, a headline on the issue of the Recreational Boatsman's Review that my father had been reading. The squiggles drew in Corndog's attention ever more intently, until he fell into what seemed like a kind of trance. The squiggles began to blink in and out of his consciousness, but not merely to disappear. They were replaced there by images. First, the image was simple, a gray metal boat, dented and covered in dust. But then the images grew more and more involved, until finally a whole scene played out in his mind. The boat was now sitting on a trailer behind a rusty pickup in an Arby's parking lot. A man in a navy blue blazer with a white captain's hat stepped out of the cab and spat around the extinguished cigar hanging from the side of his mouth. That three grand's firm, he said 
looked straight at Corndog. Corndog snapped out of his trance and began to panic, his feet sliding over the tile floor as he scrambled to get out of the bathroom. Despite his terror, though, he couldn't stay out. A few minutes later, he returned to face the squiggles again, but this time their little magic act was different. They disappeared again, but this time gave way not to images or even objects, but to states of affairs. What I mean is, Corndog didn't see a boat, or a man selling a boat, or even feel a desire to buy a boat. His thinking took as its direct object the whole universe, a universe that presented itself as being such that, right now, it was a good time to buy a pontoon boat. Corndog's heart raced. It was the most terrifying and most wonderful thing he'd ever felt. There was a lot Corndog didn't know about the conventions of human literature. For example, he didn't know that our books, newspapers, and magazines tend to contain multiple pages of writing. So he didn't know that the single magazine on the bathroom floor contained enough text to occupy him for the whole afternoon. Within a minute, he had read all the headlines and was out of swiggles. So he went to find more, and he knew where to look. He bounded into the family room and stared up at the bookshelf. He wasn't nearly dexterous enough to pull a book from the shelf, so, thinking like a dog thinks, he simply knocked the whole shelf over. Most of the books tumbled out unopened, and Corndog canvassed those with disappointment at how few squiggles they offered. But two had fallen open, revealing the text inside, and he quickly set his attention upon them. The first of these was called Reverend McAllister's Book of Bible Stories that underscored the wickedness of human nature. A little context is needed to make sense of Corndog's rather surprising interpretation of this text. My parents shared a driveway with another farmhouse, that of Richard Tobin, a small engine repairman and founder and chairman of the Marion County Society of Religious Skeptics. The society was small, since there were very few religious skeptics in Marion County, and even fewer who cared to publicly reveal themselves as such. Richard kept some miscellaneous livestock on his small five-acre lot, usually three or four hogs, two horses, and a steer he had bought for his daughter, Sarah, to show for 4-H at the county fair. Sarah, I should mention, was only a year older than me, and she was and still is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. She also, it turned out, had a disease that would gradually make her blood less and less adept at the task that your blood and my blood regularly perform with ease, but we didn't know that back then. Though the calf had been Sarah's to raise, Richard had insisted on naming it, and with all the sacrilege he could muster, he gave it the name God Almighty. Richard had different explanations for why he chose this name depending on who asked. He told Sarah that it was to teach her a lesson about how petty and cruel religious people could be when they feel slighted. And indeed, the lesson was there to be learned. God Almighty never won a single ribbon at the fair, despite the fact that he was, thanks to Sarah's studied devotion, by far the most handsome, well-fed, and well-behaved steer in Marion County. But when Richard was talking to other adults, especially to devout ones, he would explain God Almighty's name differently. What better name, he would ask, could there be for something that produces so much bull****? When Richard explained the name to himself, though, only one reason seemed pertinent. One day, God Almighty would get old and sick, 
and Richard would be the one to go out to the barn and shoot him. Corndog, like all the pets on the block, knew about God Almighty and regarded him with trepidation from a respectful distance. So it was only natural that, when he read the references to God Almighty in Reverend McAllister's book of Bible stories, Corndog understood these to be about the cow next door. In light of this interpretation, it perhaps made more sense to Corndog than it does to us why the Israelites, as he read that they did, made a golden calf in an attempt to show their appreciation for God Almighty. But initially, at least, it made much less sense to him than it probably does to us why God was so angry with the Israelites. Their art, Corndog thought, seemed perfectly respectful. But then Corndog read on, and it became clearer. God Almighty, wrote Reverend McAllister, despises our worship. Whether it be of golden calves, or magical wafers, or even his own inspired words. He asks just three things of us, and we never give him even one. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Corndog thought that it was very noble of God Almighty to ask for only those things, and not for hay or salt licks or little golden statues of himself. And Corndog felt very bad that he, like us, had never done any of them. It was in this penitent mood that Corndog began reading the other book that had come open when it fell from the bookshelf. It was called Lieutenant Aquamarine, a novel for patriotic children. Corndog didn't understand that sometimes we human beings write stories that aren't true, just entertain each other, or that sometimes when we do so, we write it in the present tense to make the events in the story seem more urgent and real. So Corndog's heart began to race as he read the following. Lieutenant Aquamarine is hit. The Chinese cowards who shot him must have been hiding behind the mulberry bushes, and now they're scampering away gleefully into the foliage. Lieutenant Aquamarine slinks back against the base of a grizzled, vine-covered old oak tree. Will he... Corndog broke off his reading mid-sentence. I know, he thought to himself, exactly where that oak tree is, and he bolted out towards the woods, full of his newfound altruism. Lieutenant Aquamarine, of course, wasn't leaning against the oak tree in our woods. Upon realizing this, Corndog let out a ball as loud as that of two basset hounds, four times the number of basset hounds he actually was, in the hopes that Lieutenant Aquamarine would hear him. He continued to do this for a full four hours as he ran frantically through the trees. Just as dusk was falling, he came upon a clearing that he had never explored before. There, in the middle of it, was God Almighty. As frequently happened, he had kicked down the fence in Richard Tobin's yard and wandered back to the woods. From the perspective of a five-month-old, half-basset hound, half-lab puppy, God Almighty looked as big and black as the woods itself. Corndog fell silent, froze, and stared at him. He knew what kind of dog he wanted to be. Valentine's Day may have passed, but Gentleman's Mills is happy to present a selection of outdoor-themed gifts you should have gotten your sweetheart for Valentine's Day. Lingerie. It's made of grass. The Love Tent. Built for one, priced for two. 
inedible underwear made from non-food grade versions of otherwise edible ingredients now available in tallow the rose petal spreader this diesel powered machine distributes a tight even layer of rose petals on your floor couch or bed not approved for indoor use other fish in the sea a field guide to north american freshwater fish with all the images heavily photoshopped to look like eligible bachelorettes inseparable These average-looking figurines can be separated without much work, but why would you want to? That's sad. Hiking earrings, specially suited to hiking by virtue of the plentiful declarations of such on their extensive packaging. His and hers goldfish bowls with goldfish. One bowl is made of blue glass, the other of pink glass. The goldfish inside the bowls are of indeterminate sex because we don't know how to tell. The magnifying glass of my beloved. Get up close and personal with your significant other's hair follicles and pores. Desire pills. Is your heart pure enough to take Gentleman's Mills desire pills? We don't fully understand them, but we love selling them. Pre-melted candles. Why wait for the good part? Bubble bath glasses. Wear them during your bath to make even the least bubbly bath look like a top-tier bubble bath. Foot rub tags. Use this neon yellow adhesive flag to mark which foot you've already rubbed so one of your lover's feet doesn't get neglected while the other gets overrubbed. Love dust. Sprinkle this everywhere. The rose sorter. This contraption will help you sort your roses by color, thorniness, length of stem, and two other mystery categories. The chocolizer. Wondering what fillings lurk inside your chocolates? Drop them in the provided test tubes, wait for them to dissolve, insert the test strip, and learn what flavors you could have enjoyed if you were less risk averse. Current model identifies only caramel and milk chocolate. Dark chocolate coming in 2016. Reversible candle. Ships unreversed, but turn it inside out at the perfect moment. Card becupider. Covers any new or used card in cherubs. Turn that old graduation card from your aunt into a Valentine's Day card your lover will have to accept. Secret admiree service. For a reasonable fee, we'll provide you with the address to an anonymous PO box to which you can send your love-lorn gestures of affection, guaranteed to be 100% unrequited. The Gentleman's Mills Universal Valentine's Day dinner coupon. Present this coupon at any restaurant in the world to receive one order of Gentleman's Mills special red and pink Valentine's Day enchiladas for two. If this item is not already on the menu, a recipe for the chef has been helpfully printed on the back of the coupon, along with a sternly worded statement of the coupon's authenticity signed the management, sure to assuage the doubts of any potentially skeptical waitstaff. Okay, well, it's time again for everybody's least favorite, most hated segment, the part of the show where I share the horrendousness of the blog written by Maya, the archenemy of Out of All Doors. As most of you know, she stole our URL and now she uses it to post stuff about how great the indoors is and it's insulting and disgusting and frankly just incorrect. And whatever, people put awful stuff on the internet all the time, but it's the fact that she stole our URL to do it. That's what angers me and it should anger you too. And the fact that she's been able to continue to do it for a few months now with no consequences means well I don't know what it means it means maybe that there's no justice in the world but anyway until such time as Maya gets what she deserves or develops a conscience I'm going to keep sharing her insipid thoughts with the outdoor community because frankly 
Outrage is the only healthy response to this. So here we go. Another terrible entry from Maya's blog, The Sheltered Life. Three foul-proof methods to get birds out of your house. Hello again, insiders. There's no better proof of the superiority of the indoors than the fact that even outdoor critters will do anything they can to get in. Whether it's squirrels that chewed their way into your attic or a family of skunks that burrowed into the basement, animals in the house can drive you wild. And I'm sure you will all agree with me, readers, that of all the ways in which nature can violate our home sweet homes, the most volatile of all is when birds come in flapping their malicious disease-covered wings all over the place. Well, as usual, I'm here to help with these three surefire ways to get them out. If you're like me, then your first instinct when you see a bird in the house is to open all the windows and then lock yourself safely in the bathroom until the disgusting creature finds its way out. But it turns out this is one of the worst things you can do. Think about it. There's only one bird inside your house, but literally billions outside of it. By the time that one bird finds its way out, it's likely that 20 or 30 new ones will have found their way in. Then you're totally flocked. Besides, opening windows only works for birds that can fly high enough to get out of them. It's no use at all when you've been visited by an emu, penguin, or flightless cormorant. Okay, so that's not a way to... Number two, it goes without saying, but it needs to be said. When there's a bird around, they only have eyes for one thing, your eyes. Do you have safety glasses stashed in easily accessible locations around your house to protect you when birds get in? No? Then click here, and for heaven's sake, get the expedited shipping. And if you click there, it takes you to an Amazon page for safety glasses, like a value pack. And again, that's not a way to get birds out of your house. So she's 0 for 2. 3. The best way to get birds out of the house, of course, is to never let them get in in the first place. Chances are, if you're a reader of this blog, you've already sealed shut your windows or even better boarded them over entirely. That's a good first step, but it's not enough. Birds can still swoop down your chimney, crawl through the vent and into your dryer, or, if it's a duck or a heron, swim through your plumbing and come splashing out of the sump pump hole in your basement. With all these bird-sized entrances to our houses, the only way to be sure they don't come a-knockin' is to make your house as unattractive to them as possible. How can you do this? The answer is simpler than you might think. Mustard. It's a scientific fact that birds hate, hate, hate the smell of mustard. Just leave an open jar next to any ingress to your house that you think a bird might be eyeing, and they'll get the message and move on to the house of some poor schmuck who doesn't read this blog. All right, listeners, I wasn't going to get into all this, but she's basically forcing my hand here. She's daring me to tell you what the story is. I think I've mentioned before that Maya used to be my babysitter. Yes, she's only two years older than me, so she was babysitting me when I was 13 and she was 15. Was that awkward? Yes, very, but my parents didn't consider me responsible enough to stay home with my younger siblings, and even though she was only two years older, they did consider Maya responsible enough to do it. So when my parents went on dates or to events or whatever, Maya would come over and watch us, and even then, she hated the outdoors. She never wanted to let us play outside. She was always telling us how much more fun we could have inside, and... (laughs) I hated it when she babysat us. I hated it. I wanted to play outside. So one summer evening, she comes over to babysit us, and it's beautiful outside, and it's not even close to dark, and she's insisting that we all stay inside and play board games in a blanket fort. Maybe that would be fine in the winter or late at night or whatever, but it was 80 degrees and sunny, and I wasn't having it. So I stood up to her. I was like, no, I'm playing outside. So I went outside. So she follows me to the door, and she's standing inside the screen door, yelling out at me to come back inside, that she's going to tell my parents, etc., etc. But I'm just ignoring her. I actually don't have anything in particular to do, but I'm just enjoying being outside in defiance of her. I'm throwing sticks across the road into the field, so in case I get in trouble later, I can be like, Dad, I was getting the sticks out of the yard so you can mow tomorrow. 
So finally, I guess Maya snaps, and she opens the front door and comes out of the house, down the steps like she's going to come grab me and drag me back inside or something. And I turn to face her just in time to see a bird swoop out of nowhere and peck out her eye. Close your eyes. I feel you closing them. I sense that you're closing them, and I wholeheartedly approve. Lie down somewhere comfortable. Yes, it can be a bed. That was honestly one of the main places I was thinking of when I said somewhere comfortable. Yes, it can be a couch. Again, that was one of the main places I was thinking of when I said somewhere comfortable. Breathe deeply and evenly. Let the breath in. Then let it back out. Letting it back out is key. Never let any breath in that you don't intend to let back out. That's a good rule of thumb. Are there exceptions to this rule? Of course. You're on a beach, but before you get too excited, this is a cold beach, and yes, those exist. There's snow on the sand. You're wearing boots and a parka and many, many other articles of clothing designed to keep you warm, far too numerous to list here. The icy cold waves lap at the shore. A crab comes scuttling up out of the water, and he's like, brrrr. You sit down on a big piece of chair-shaped driftwood. The sand and salt water have scoured the piece of driftwood, and it is as smooth to the touch as a cool woman's forehead dabbing cloth. From your driftwood perch, you watch the sun set beyond the waves, sinking down below the horizon, a vast orange orb that somehow possesses the seemingly contradictory power to cast the sky around it in purples and deep blues. What a sunset. At last, the sun dips below the horizon, and it is gone. You sigh wistfully at the memory of the sunset. It was easily one of the best sunsets you've ever... Wait! Hold on, what? The sun's coming back up. It peeks up over the horizon, a shimmering pink sphere streaking the sky with peach and lavender-colored bands, the clouds absorbing its light so that they themselves look radiant. There. And now the sun's going back down again. That amazing sunrise was maybe half done, and now the sun's already setting again, which is fine, sunsets are beautiful too, and this one is no exception. It may even be more beautiful than the first one. In fact, it definitely is. The colors are richer and more varied, and a flock of birds is flying into it in slow motion. And there it goes. The sun has set, and night is upon... Oh, for Pete's sake, here comes the sun again. This better be an excellent sunrise. Okay, well, it is an excellent sunrise, I'll grant it that. And as you sit there on your driftwood chair, remember, you reflect on the way that this dawn brings with it a sense of renewed hope for you. This dawn reminds you that whatever today may have held, tomorrow will soon be here, bringing with it a whole heaping helping of potential. Whoa! Did you see that? I mean, you did see that. And what you saw was the sun set in like less than a second. It was doing its whole dawn sunrise thing, and it was almost fully above the horizon, and then zip straight back down and gone. That has to be the fastest sunset of all time. It has to be. And you got to see it. What an amazing moment that must have been for you. Wow. You're a very lucky person. Well, I could do a whole thing about how peaceful and calming the night is with the stars and all that, but I'm sure the sun will be returning very soon, so I don't want to start anything too serious if it's just going to get interrupted by another sunrise. This visualization exercise can be all sunsets and sunrises. That's just fine with me. Many people find one or both of those phenomena very relaxing, so the more the better, I say. Of course, now that we're expecting it, the sun isn't rising again. 
unless... Well, listen, I don't want to be alarming, but when the sun set that quickly, I assumed it moved that quickly of its own volition, but what if it fell? What if something happened and it fell, and what if something broke? What if it's gone? What if it's never coming back? All that up, down, up, down can't have been good for it. I think it may have overexerted itself. I know this isn't a very relaxing thing to say, but this could be really, really bad. And I'm going to feel really bad about encouraging you to admire those sunrises and sunsets from earlier if it turns out that they were just erratic behavior symptomatic of whatever affliction eventually led to the sun's demise. But wait, what is that you see? A graying on the horizon? A paling in yonder sky? Why, yes, something is rising. Something... Okay, well, something is rising. What is that thing? You watch as a big, flimsy disc rises unsteadily over the horizon, advancing upward in herky-jerky fits and starts. Also, it's been set on fire, presumably to appear more sun-like, but the fire is generating a lot of unsun-like smoke. You watch as the fake sun makes it about two-thirds of the way up over the horizon before collapsing face down into the ocean, its flames extinguished with a low hiss. It floats there, the corpse of a dreadfully executed ruse, and night is still upon you. So the question becomes, now what? If there was ever any doubt that there's something seriously wrong with the sun, there's no doubt now. Only rampant desperation could lead to an attempt at deception as ill-conceived as the one you just witnessed. I hope I don't have to go into all the ways we're screwed if there's no sun. That would make an already stressful visualization exercise even worse. But... Bottom line, if you don't want to hurtle through space for eternity while frozen to that piece of driftwood, then you'd better find the piece of driftwood you would like to be frozen to for eternity while... Whoa! Wow! It's back! The sun's back! You were just shuffling around the beach looking for a piece of driftwood to which you'd be frozen for eternity while hurtling through space when the sun, the real sun, came rocketing back into the sky. And now it's straight overhead, high noon, and it's beaming down on you, a bright, blazing white circle of the most life-giving of light gifts, sunshine. And the sky is blue, and the snow on the sand turns to water and runs into the ocean, and that crab you saw earlier who said, brr, rushes back into the ocean as well, making a sound like, ah. And here comes the bathing beauties, here come the dudes in their board shorts, here come the beach umbrellas and beach towels and boom boxes and bikini salesmen selling bikinis $10 a pound and Ziploc bags stuffed full of bikinis. Needless to say, you're trying your hardest to get out of those boots and that park and all those other strategic layers of clothing as fast as possible. Those were for a cold beach. This is now a hot, hot beach thanks to the sun. The real sun, hale and hearty, healthy and healthful, and something you didn't know before, a showman to the core. And now on that positive note, as you get all your layers off to reveal the flattering bathing suit your faith caused you to don, a peace that you anticipate lasting right around a month comes over you, and you open your eyes, you get up, and you go about your day. But as you do, listener, I want you to do something for me as a personal favor. I want you to take the peace of out of all doors with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors.
listening to the sixth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Durant, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, J.J. Evans, Steve Tartaglioni, Greg Lynch, Casey Bye, Ben Bird, Cayman Bird, Chris Nichols, Frank Koningsman, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey Bye and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with Episode 7 of Out of All Doors. 